Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Easter to you. Now, I want us to imagine something for a moment. Imagine that the final words of Matthew's gospel were those that directly preceded the passage that we just heard. In that event, the final words of Matthew's gospel would be those at the end of chapter 27 and not chapter 28, which we just heard. And they would therefore read as follows. Can you imagine if these were the last words of the gospel? Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. That would be it. That would have been the end of the story. No resurrection, just a cold tomb containing the body of Jesus. The Jerusalem Post might have reported, Messiah claims prove wide of the mark. Or, Galilee hopefuls light extinguished. Something like that. There would have been nothing to fire up the early church. Jesus' life would have been interesting, but his claims would have come to nothing. More than that, they would have been seen as fraudulent. There'd be no church, no Easter. We wouldn't be sitting here now, or if we were, it would be to celebrate something like 100 years of the Coca-Cola bottle instead. But it wasn't the end of the story. The gospel didn't end with guards standing by the tomb securing it. We're here today because Matthew wrote a 28th chapter. And that chapter tells that far from a fraud, Jesus was God. Now that chapter 28 was written largely at a time and for a people who were in desperate need of an injection of fresh hope. They were the people of Israel oppressed by Roman rule. Now what about the hope that we need in this day and age? I picked up a random newspaper on Thursday and began to feel that melancholy that comes over me and perhaps you when reading the world's news, particularly at times when the news has been as difficult as this week's from Brussels and beyond. And I boiled the stories down. Page one of this newspaper that I was reading was about danger in our streets and revenge for the Brussels atrocities and that it would rain for the foreseeable future. Page two was about obesity, a different danger, and religious hatred. Page three was about traffic wardens and a snub to a famous singer. Page four and five were about the danger to us on Britain's streets. Page seven was about revenge and the growth of religious hatred in the United States presidential race. And page nine was that the pubs would open until 1 a.m. on the Queen's 90th birthday. We had to wait that long for something that was reasonably cheerful. Now, 
I don't want to overstate the case, but I think it's pretty true that we're a people in need of some fresh hope too. Not just a nation either, but a world. The same newspaper was full of advertisements. Adverts for food, for home improvements, for gardening, for Wi-Fi, for mobile phones, for pet insurance. That's a burgeoning market, isn't it? Pet insurance. For cars and for nights out. Those adverts brought it home to me that it seems like in some way we're a people that no longer hope as our forebears hoped. We don't hope great things for the world. We don't hope great things for Europe or for Britain. Instead, we hope, most of us, for a job, for a home, for a holiday, for friends that we can rely on, and a good time when we can afford it. We might dare to hope that Spurs have a good season. We might dare to hope that we meet someone special. But the greater things, the state, our leaders, economic, artistic progress, have not delivered. And our hope, therefore, has tended to shrink to shrink to those things that we can more directly affect. So into that world of anxiety, of fear, of shrunken hope, a few weeks ago, a hundred or so of us delivered leaflets to every address in Claygate. They landed on the doormat aside the pizza leaflets, the paving, drainage, gardening services leaflets, and the leaflet that we dropped through those doors said on its front cover, hope has risen, and we underlined risen. Right in the middle of our anxious, troubled, insecure world, our vicar Philip Plimming audaciously claims in his opening remarks. He claims that the death and resurrection of Jesus was nothing less than the beginning of a new chapter in human history and that evil will not have the last word and death need not be the end. And Philip calls it a victory over sin and death, a triumph for hope and new life. And he adds that those things will be celebrated by the poor, the persecuted, and refugees alongside those in more fortunate situations. And he hopes that we'll come along to Holy Trinity Claygate this Easter to explore that hope. So that's what we'd better do. From where, though? From where did Philip get the courage to write that open letter with such conviction and make such claims for the resurrection. His conviction comes because Matthew's gospel didn't end at chapter 27. So what's in this chapter 28? 
It's a story of something that hadn't happened before and hasn't happened since. The witnessing of a life after death. And not just a life that Jesus has risen. How do we know so? Because of the presence, action, and reaction of four different groups of people that Matthew mentions. The presence. The presence of two named women. Others are named in the other three gospel accounts of these events. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who went to Jesus' tomb. They went to remember, to make memorials. They came as the shocked people of Brussels. Came to the Mailbeek metro station this week. They came because they too could not grasp what had happened. Because they wanted to understand somehow. What they witnessed changed everything. So we know because of the women and their witness. We know because of the action of God who appeared in earthquake and angel, angel of the Lord come down from heaven, who was sent to roll away the stone that covered the door to the tomb. A terrifying collision of the natural and supernatural. The earthquake and the angel. Not bent on doing harm, though, but bent on doing good that would change the world for the better. We know because of the reaction, too, of the Roman guards, those whom at the end of 27 chapter had been told to make the tomb secure and who had appeared so solid and unyielding, yet in chapter 28, shake and become like dead men. Jesus has risen, but they've become like dead men. And we know because of the presence of Jesus himself, who then appeared to the women and gave instructions to see you in Galilee, and then appears to innumerable more people, breaking bread with those he walked alongside, showing to Thomas the skeptic his wounds, or meeting with the disciples in their favorite fishing place. We know because of the witness of the women the action of God, the reaction of the Roman guards, and the presence of Jesus himself. So if those were the events, what about the response to those events? Well, the women's response was to come to Jesus, we heard it in the reading, to clasp his feet and to worship him. Clasp his feet, maybe because they wanted to see that he was real, that their eyes weren't deceiving him. They wanted that physical proof that this was Jesus. And they worshipped him because they then knew that all that Jesus had said about himself had always been true. Perhaps their minds went back to the time that he'd said that he only could forgive sins. Perhaps they were reminded of the previous day when he talked freely about his father's kingdom 
and how he would go there and prepare a place for them too. And at his trial, that he had accepted the claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. For those women that day, hope had risen. That's why they feel a such joy as they rush off to tell Jesus' followers. Because of their response and that telling of the good news, Matthew has his chapter 28, and we have a gospel to proclaim. That was the women. What about the disciples who then heard the news? Well, the the disciples' response was to wait for the promised Spirit of Christ that then descended on them at Pentecost and to spread the good news of Jesus everywhere and every way they could. They knew that was what Jesus wanted. And they began the movement that we call the Christian faith, which means that today is being celebrated as good news by hundreds of millions of people 2,000 years later, whether homeless or wealthy, Persecuted or free, refugees or settled. But what about you and I in our own mixed up, anxious world? What of us? What's our response? Why is this gospel good news for us today? In what way has hope risen that means anything tangible to us? Well, let me try to answer that in my own way in the time remaining by making a few short points. First, hope. Hope to me means much less if we've never known what it is to despair. In a sense, without bad news, there can be no good news. Jesus lived through a time when there was racial and religious hatred, when there was oppression of the poor, when there was organized crime, when there was state violence. And on a personal level, he experienced betrayal, persecution, public humiliation and torture. And you know, God in Jesus knew all of those things, yet chose to come into the world where those existed, lived with the consequences of evil, and came through to resurrection in a new state. Evil could not defeat him. Now, in our despair, such as we may experience it, whether that is personal in whatever form, or it's merely in our reading of the first nine pages of our newspaper, I take comfort, and I think we can take comfort, from the fact that we are not in territory that is unknown to God. We are not in territory that he denies or that has never experienced. We're in places spiritually, economically, in every way that Jesus has known and come through, albeit in a different place and time. We are in places that Jesus has come through and knows. 
None of that makes suffering de facto good or gives the evil inside human hearts a benevolent moral purpose. It's merely the first lesson of Easter that evil is not where the story ends, that there is a chapter 28. The news from Brussels this week also reminded us of the words of the then Norwegian Prime Minister Jens Stoltenberg following Anders Breivar's uh, attacks in 2012. And he said at that time, and I think they're great words, he said that we are still shocked by what has happened, but we'll never give up what we stand for. Our response will be more democracy, more openness, and more humanity. We will answer, he said, hatred with love. And that is what Jesus did. He took rejection. He took evil against God and met it with more love than we can imagine. And that love inspires our hope. So the first reason hope has risen is because of that love. Second, in his role as a sports reporter, my son Tom uh, carries out more pre- and post-match interviews with football managers than you could shake a stick at. Um, And, of course, that means that he hears lots and lots of clichés And my favorite cliche at the moment that he reports to me is the manager who regularly speaks of his new signings as having brought a new dimension, a new dimension to the team. Oh, yeah. Since we brought him in, Gary's brought us a new dimension on the left wing. It amuses me to think that on the mud bath pitches of North Yorkshire, Gary is operating in a different continuum of space and time to the rest of the team, (laughs) let alone how the fans see that. But you know, new dimension. Gary's probings on the left wing do link what seems to me to be a second reason why hope has risen. And that's introduced by the simple utterance of Jesus, of the risen Jesus to those two women. Greetings, he says. In that simple word and the advice that follows, the appearances populate the Gospels and show that Jesus is in that new dimension. It's a dimension that we don't know, that we have not yet experienced. And yet, in chapter 28... We hear from it a precious view, a tiny glimpse of that new existence, that place where he is, that state of sonship and sovereignty in which Jesus now lives. And it's a place where, heartheningly, Jesus, you know, hasn't changed. He still cares for the Marys. 
He still cares for the disciples and wants to see them. He still has the same purpose, to inspire more followers of himself. In John's Gospel, he calls that new dimension the Father's house with many rooms. In Revelation, he calls it a new heaven through John. And in both, it's a place to which you and I are called to. You see, we, we know from chapter 28 that such a place does exist, for we glimpse it. And that it can be known, for Jesus has spoken to us from that place. It roots our hope. It gives that hope a reality. For Jesus is alive. Third. Amazing bit of news this, I thought. BBC Radio York this week reported that Acom Church in York had ordered a special set of banners for Easter proclaiming, rather like our leaflets, that Christ is risen. Four banners, they were all going to say Christ is risen. However, the printer had, in error, omitted the T. So the banners gave the rather different message that Chris has risen. No joke, this happened this week. Chris has risen. Now, there's nothing more heartwarming than the optimism of a curate and, and curate Ned Lunn spotted the error in time and pointed out that all was not lost. He said that all was not lost because the pastor of the neighboring Baptist church in Acom is in fact called Chris. And Chris had a sunrise service this Easter Sunday like Philip had this morning at 6.30 or so. And last year, Chris's predecessor had slept through the entire thing. So the message that Chris has risen <laughs> had some value after all. Look it up. It's a good story. I'd say that those banners are in fact more than valuable in that way. More than valuable in Acom. It's the third reason why hope is tangible for us. You see, think of it this way. The women told the disciples. The disciples told the gospel writers. The gospel writers told the early church, who told you and I. In that lineage, we see a transfer of information, sure, but we see an active spirit of God, and we see countless lives through history that have changed for the better through hope. We see that chapter 28 is not only a message of love overcoming despair, it's not only evidence of the new dimension in which Jesus lives, but is in itself something transformative here and now for you and I. Now because of the hope we have in Jesus... We may still experience despair. Of course, we know that. But we can hold on to a greater force, his love. Because of the hope we have in Jesus, we may grieve for the world. But we can sense a better future in a new place. 
Now, that hope may be something that you know, or it may be something that seems a million miles away from your life now. You may have been changed by it, or you're still searching for it. The only step is to love God. And in Christ, we have the way and the reason to do that. Hope has risen. Hope has risen because Christ has risen. And because Christ has risen, Chris has risen. And Joe, and Andrew, and Priyanka, and she, and Asif, and you and I. Our hope is personal. Let me just conclude. So a hope has risen that points to a greater love. A hope has risen that is rooted in the new creation that Jesus has shown us. And a hope has risen that is personal to us and to everyone who seeks it. If this service, what I've said, what Philip says, has touched you in any way, and you feel you'd like to know more, then please speak to either Philip or myself at the end, or just pick up a Bible, and maybe look over the preceding 27 chapters, and uncover more of the word, deeds, and character of the one who's rising we celebrate today. What's your chapter 28? Is there one in your life, one that's written, one that is part of your story that puts everything else in context and gives it meaning? Or has it yet to be written? Is that a chapter in your life that Jesus can be a part of? Let's pray.